So let's imagine together that this table is your Thanksgiving table. And we, we have some different characters who are going to be at your Thanksgiving table. Okay, first of all, we have a lady. She's super wealthy, and she spends a lot of time at boutiques buying shoes like these. So we've got this lady. And across the table from her, we have this man, and everything he owns fits in this trash bag. At this table, we also have, let's see here, we have a guy, he wears this hat that says, Make America Great Again, and he uh, voted for our president and really feels like God is bringing our nation back under Donald Trump. And he's sitting with uh, a lady who has this flag hanging outside her home. Let's see if you can see this. This is her. She uh, voted differently than he did. And uh, she is actually so um, upset that her candidate didn't win that she, um, she's unfriended everyone on Facebook she knows who didn't vote like she did. So we've got these two at the Thanksgiving table. Um, also at the Thanksgiving table, um, we have a leader from the KKK, Ku Klux Klan. And uh, this guy uh, is sitting across the table from a black man um, who's wearing a Black Lives Matter hat. We also have a religious fundamentalist um, who has a really big Bible and a lot of theological books, um, who is sitting with a person who prides themselves in uh, being an atheist and um, is really into Darwin. So, okay, this is our Thanksgiving table. How do you feel about it? <laughs> Nervous laughter, just like first service. Uh, what are these? Barriers. They're barriers. These are social, economic, political, racial, religious barriers. And here's what tends to happen in our world when it comes to barriers. So here's the table. But, oh, 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 I, I don't agree with you. I'm different from you. So I'm just going to turn my chair here, and um, I'm going to get a, a smaller table uh, and put it right here. And then I'm going to pull up chairs to this smaller table with people who think like I think. And the more I am surrounded with people who think like I think, the more I naturally begin to fear and um, dismiss people who I don't understand who think differently than I think. 
and the table gets smaller, and I only invite people to the table who share my perspective, or maybe I grab a TV tray and just eat alone. I know for me, uh, growing up in Wisconsin in the Midwest, uh, I, I had two really great stories um, really planted within my heart, uh, stories that I realize not everyone has, and I am grateful for them. The first story was a family that loved me, that provided me with a safe haven, a spot where my soul could come find rest. I knew I was loved, cared for, uh, encouraged. When I stepped out to take risks in the world, I knew my family was a place I could come home to. It's a great story and gift that I was given. Another story I was given is a story of uh, just a great God who created the whole world, but also knew me intimately, formed and fashioned me. And my story about God really allowed me to just grow up knowing and believing that God's presence was always with me. So I have these two great stories. My family loves me. God created me and is with me, and I'm never alone. But along with those two great stories, I also inherited some false stories. Some false stories about people, black people, poor people, false stories about sexual minorities, about addicts. I inherited some false stories about mainline Christians, about atheists, about people of other religions. And in my handed-down narratives, these people were to be avoided or feared or at the very least approached with a whole lot of skepticism. Because something about the stories I had learned taught me that, you know, I was just a little bit more deserving of the love of God than they were. And so sometimes I would look at others with pity or with contempt, but I saw all of these people as sort of like undeserving of the close proximity to God that I had. Like we are his favorites. We're the blessed ones. Most of us are raised with some similarly self-centered story of one another, some kind or another of self-centered story. Some of you were raised to really, like, watch out for and keep away from those born-agains. They're crazy. Some of you were raised to fear or to dismiss or minimize Catholics or liberals or conservatives or to stay far away from people with money and power or to stay far away from people without any money and power. All of this thinking forces us to quickly become experts at exclusion. And experts at crafting a God who plays favorites, 
and his favorites are usually people that look like us. The story of Ruth in the Bible, this little book of four chapters that comes close to the beginning, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth. This little book of Ruth and the life of Jesus and the gospel message teach us something very different than what we are trained at becoming experts of exclusion. And this book is challenging. It is meant to disturb our ideologies. The story of Ruth is a foreshadowing of the big table God is setting for the world in Christ. And so Gary just read Ruth chapter 2. And in the second chapter, the plot is beginning to really thicken. The prodigal Naomi and her foreign daughter-in-law Ruth begin searching for a way, really a way to survive. That is what they are doing. And Ruth heads out to glean from the fields of local farmers. And by luck or by providence, she ends up gleaning in the field of Boaz, a man who's closely connected to Naomi's family. And the text says that Boaz is a man of standing. One commentator I read this week said the best translation, rather than a man of standing, would be Boaz is a pillar of society. Boaz is important in the community. He's a man of reputation, a man of worth, a man of social and economic standing. This is Boaz. And Ruth, a foreign woman who would be considered the lowest of society, meets Boaz, a pillar of society. So already the tension is there. Like, how is this interaction going to go? Boaz is a somebody. Ruth is a nobody. And yet Boaz also has this close connection with the family that Ruth has devoted herself to. Boaz has no clear obligation to come to the aid of Ruth and Naomi, but the story suggests that it would be a good thing to do so. So Boaz seems to treat Ruth well, inviting her to glean alongside uh, the other women in the field, and he offers a blessing to Ruth, hoping that God will provide for her needs. Interestingly, though, in the dialogue, it is Ruth who seems to up the ante. So she says, she receives the blessing, and then she says this to Boaz, May I continue to find favor in your eyes, my Lord? You have given me comfort and have spoken kindly to your servant, though I do not have the standing of one of your servant girls. It's up to the reader to decide if Ruth is being directly sarcastic towards Boaz in this moment, but it's clear that he feels a gentle nudge. So at mealtime, he invites Ruth over to the table and everyone else, and uh, he expands his tangible offer of support to her. And here's the dilemma for this character Boaz, this man of standing. He's confronted with Ruth, the outsider. And initially, he responds in a kind, 
perhaps pious kind of way. He doesn't chase her away from the field, yet he doesn't offer her anything except a blessing of hopeful provision from God. And it is Ruth, the outsider, who challenges Boaz to be more tangibly helpful to a person in her situation. She doesn't just need a blessing. She needs food. She needs protection. And while Boaz didn't kick her out of the field, he also didn't yet guarantee she'd be successful in her gleaning efforts. And so Ruth, kind of subtly and slyly, she points this out to him. She says, I do not have the standing of one of your servant girls. And the result is that he catches on, and he makes sure that she actually receives what she needs. So Boaz, this faithful pillar of society, this faithful Israelite man, actually needs the voice of the pagan outsider to teach him how to be faithful to God. Boaz may have known how to pray for the stranger, but it took the stranger to teach Boaz how to make those prayers real, true, actualized. And you can hear like, clear echoes of a passage in James in the New Testament in this story when we read, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds, can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. Praying for someone's one thing, especially someone like Ruth, the outsider. But what if our faith calls us to more than just wishing someone well, hoping the best for them? How is it that an invisible God is made visible in the world? It is only through the hands and the hearts of those who love God making this invisible God visible in the world. St. John Chrysostom said this, Do you think that the man-loving God has given you much so you could use it only for your own benefit? No, but so that your abundance might supply the lack of others. What's most interesting in the story of Ruth and what is jarring ought to be is that it takes Ruth the pagan foreigner, to teach Boaz, the faithful pillar of society, what it means to care for people in need. So it raises all sorts of questions for us. Questions like this. Who are the outsiders that I encounter on a daily basis? What's my relationship to them? How am I interacting with them? What do they have to teach me? And am I willing to listen? Boaz crossed racial, social, economic barriers. And it reminds me of someone else who crossed a lot of barriers. 
when I read the life of Jesus in the Gospels, what stands out to me so often is who he had at the table, who he dined with, who he ate meals with, his table fellowship, the diversity of Jesus' table. I mean, he gathered with priests, with prostitutes, with the religious elite, with the common street people. Jesus dined with his disciples whom he loved, and he also dined with his adversaries. How many of us can say that we actively reach out to people who dislike, oppose, displease, or we perceive to be our enemies? And yet this is what we see in the life of Jesus. There's this big table with Jesus, and all people are treated with equal dignity. They all leave his presence with their dignity intact, even when he has very strong words for them. And in the time of Jesus, even more so than today, the act of sharing a meal with someone That was a sign of respect. That was a public endorsement. It was the willingness to be seen in fellowship with someone, to associate with someone. It was a big deal. And that's why Jesus' very diverse choice of people made the religious leaders angry. And often we read where they, they will say, look at him, look at Jesus. This man eats with sinners. author and activist Shane Claiborne wrote this, when we look through the eyes of Jesus, we see new things in people. In the murderers, we see our own hatred. In the addicts, we see our own addictions. In the saints, we catch glimpses of our own holiness. When we realize that we are both wretched and beautiful, we are freed up to see others the same way. In his work, I and Thou, Martin Buber speaks of how we can see a person as simply a material object, something you look at, an it, or we can look into a person and enter the sacredness of their humanity so that they become a Thou. And as a Jewish philosopher who immigrated to Palestine to advocate for Arab-Jewish cooperation, Buber knew all too well how easily we objectify and demonize others. All the time, we look at people. Hot girls, beggars, pop stars, white folks, black folks, people with suits or dreadlocks. But over time, we can develop new eyes and look into people. Rather than looking at people as sex objects or work tools, we can see them as sacred. We can enter the holiest of holies through their eyes. They can become a thou. Often, at this sort of table, what happens is I just turn my chair around, set up my own smaller table. But if we are to follow in the way of this man, Jesus, our lives ought to resemble his ought to be like dirty with the dust of his feet because we're following so closely behind him. 
when we truly welcome the stranger, not just superficially but intimately, when we are willing to encounter them as a person with worth and dignity and even something to offer me, what we are really doing is we're welcoming Christ. We are encountering Christ. Invitation of Boaz to Ruth was an invitation that crossed all of these barriers. And in Ruth, too, you see they're sitting at the table together. They're dipping. I imagine it's like hot pot or fondue. They've got their bread. They're dipping it in the wine vinegar. They're eating together. And that invitation of Boaz to Ruth crossed many barriers, social, economic, racial. And when I was preparing this message, I couldn't help but think about it's not that long ago in this country, on this soil, that we had a deep division between blacks and whites. It's not that long ago. And how could it have been that apparently right-minded people either ignored the Bible or so distorted the Bible so as to reinforce separate water fountains, separate restaurants, separate swimming pools, separate buses on the basis of the color of a person's skin. But it was here. It wasn't that long ago. And for many, it was apparently Christian. In the book of Ruth, we have a strong word from God concerning the issue of racism. There is a strong word from God concerning the issue of nationalism. There's a very strong word from God concerning the issue of welcoming the stranger. And this book is meant to disturb our ideologies. And I don't want us to just like skim over questions like how did that happen in America that people, apparently Christian, use the Bible to defend segregation, other places apartheid. I really want us to look at that theologically, biblically. How did that happen? How does that happen? And to understand together how well-meaning Christians supported racism in this country. So to do that, we're just going to take a super quick little detour into Deuteronomy 7. In Deuteronomy 7, we read this. When the Lord your God brings you into the land, you are entering to possess and drives out before you many nations, and then those nations are listed. And when the Lord your God has delivered them over to you and you have defeated them, then you must destroy them totally. Make no treaty with them. Show them no mercy. Do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters to your sons. Let's stop there just for a quick moment. Do not intermarry with them. It is that kind of scripture that has historically been used to support segregation, apartheid. The notion being that somehow the people of God were defined in racial terms. But here's the thing. You go one verse further to verse 4, and you see that the concern was not racial. 
It was theological. It was religious. For they will, do not intermarry with them, for they will turn your children away from following me to serve other gods. The reason at that time in history that God did not want intermarriage was not because the races would be interwoven. That was not ultimately a concern. It was because the purity of monotheism would be eroded. The concern around intermarriage, it was not race, but religion. So the first principle, really, when you have a Christian dialogue about race, the first principle of the discussion ought to come from Acts 17, where Paul is speaking in Athens, and he says these words, from one man he made every nation of men. In other words, as far as humankind is concerned, there's only one group. And Christ died for all. As far as humankind is concerned, there is one group, and Christ died for all. That's the main thing. So we can ask ourselves, like, how are you doing with keeping the main thing the main thing at your Thanksgiving table. The issue can never be one of color, ethnic background, or a racial issue. The issue is the purity of loving God with all our hearts and an invitation to live and extend his covenant love to others. See, the gospel transcends all barriers. It does not mean that they do not matter. The gospel transcends all barriers. The truth of this is just foreshadowed in the activities of Boaz from Bethlehem reaching out to Ruth from Moab. It was a gracious invitation. It crossed social, economic, and racial barriers. So in this story, there's a challenge to us And it has to do with this. Who are you inviting to the table? Boaz crossed barriers not just in his prayers, but in his life and in his actions. And in doing that, he modeled and extended Yahweh's love to all people. Does the table of your life look like an echo chamber of people who think and act and live like you? That's not what we see in the life of Jesus. Jesus has a big table. And if we're going to follow in his footsteps, we too will have a diverse table. So here's what you have to do. Act justly. Love mercy. Walk humbly with your God. And when it comes to labels and barriers and all of the divisions that our world wants us to put up and be about, you have to say that's not going to be the centerpiece of my table. What is the centerpiece? 
the centerpiece of my table is Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. And these other distinguishing labels and markers and things, not to say they don't matter, not to say they don't go away, they are not the centerpiece of the table. Let's pray together as we close. Father, thank you for this lovely story that is challenging. A story of your grace and favor. And we're just beginning to see, as we walk through this book, this man Boaz, as he points us forward to the one who said, if you eat from this bread of mine, you will never hunger. to the one who called across the boundary of Jew and Gentile and barbarian and Scythian and slave and free and said, come to me, all of you, to the ends of the earth. God, I just pray that you would teach us lessons from these studies in Ruth. Teach us about compassion, about kind words, about the table that you set about relationships, about all of this and more. Teach us, God, we pray, just to turn our eyes, our gaze afresh onto you and your cross because we know it is there that all the bits and pieces fall into line. We fix our eyes on you. We worship you together now as we come to the table. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Amen.